Thanks for listening to this message from The Block KC. The Block KC exists to help young adults build their lives on what counts. We believe that is Jesus and what God has revealed in His Word. We'd love to see you next Thursday, 7 p.m. at Lenexa Baptist Church. Now, let's listen to this week's message. Block KC. What is good? What a pleasure it is to celebrate this very block day with you all. Wow, that was that was a little too much, honestly. It truly is a pleasure if it's your first time. Welcome. If we haven't met yet, my name, like Scott said, is Grant Martins. If we have met, my name is Grant Martins, uh, and if you can't remember if we met, uh, you know, you meet so many people at the block, then my name is Nick Swearingen. <laughs> so who's ready to talk about sin? Yeah, come on. Okay, uh, okay, Not, that's a little too excited to talk about sin. That's right, tonight we are talking about bitterness. We are continuing our series, Seven Deadly Sins, for young professionals here in Kansas City, and we are going to be talking about bitterness. Before that, though, I have a confession That's right, this seems to be a trend here if you've been with us lately. I was up on stage a few weeks ago um, confessing that I procured a couple packets of ketchup, well, four packets of ketchup from a local quick trip that I used at home that I didn't pay for. So I'm growing in humility. I have another confession for you. Um, This one might be, this one's a shorter story for sure. Uh, And and whatever, We, we can see what you think about it. My confession is this. I have two cars I don't know. For some reason, when people find that out, they're like, why? Why? why do you have two cars? It's like, it's not, it doesn't seem like that weird of a thing, and, but some people, for some people it is. I mean, I was Time Magazine's person of the year in 2006. I'm a closet NASCAR fan, and yet the thing that gets people going the most is that, oh, this guy has two cars? Wow. Before you start getting bitter, though, let me explain the situation. Um... One of them is a 2001 Toyota 4Runner. It has 280,000 miles. It's faithful, usually. The other one is um, a 2005 Acura with 185,000 miles. And over the course of the past three years, at any given time, I would say on average, precisely one of the two has been operable at any one given time. My roommate is laughing over here because he knows, he knows firsthand. Um, and I'm not, I'm being honest, like, where's the list? Here it is. I've alternated uh, between these vehicles because this. Here's, we have a slide, I think. Here they are in various states of disrepair. <laughs> For a while, it was the 4Runner that was out of commission after getting rear-ended. Then the Acura had a power steering pump leak that fried the alternator. Then the 4Runner had a dead battery. Then the Acura had a cylinder issue that left me stranded at Top Golf. Then the 4Runner antenna broke and the windshield needed replaced. Then the Acura had a dead battery. Then the 4Runner heat wasn't working. Then the Acura AC wasn't working. Then the 4Runner had a flat tire. Then, this is a dumb one, this is bottom right picture, I pulled too far over a curb and ripped the front bumper off the Acura when I reversed. (laughs) Then the turn signal stock on the 4Runner attached to the steering wheel started smoking while I was driving. So I pulled the blinker fuse and drove without blinkers for a month. And then last month, finally, the 4Runner needed a new headlight. And I think I'm forgetting some in there. There was a catalytic converter that tried to get stolen one time that I had to fix up. That's why I have two cars, okay? 
The purpose of me sharing that is you know then when a flying rock on I-35 hit my new Forerunner windshield, I was devastated, it's probably too strong, but I knew I needed to take action fast. If anyone has ever had a chip in their windshield, you'll know that the initial incident can seem quite harmless, but the passage of time will not heal the windshield. It might remain a nearly imperceptible chip for a long, long time, but eventually, if left untreated, the crack will grow. Maybe it'll be a seemingly random bump, maybe another rock, maybe just the stress of extreme hot or extreme cold, but soon the crack will become a full-on fissure. Don't worry, the damage is not simply just like aesthetic. I was trying not to say that word because I can't really pronounce it, but the damage isn't simply aesthetic. There is real danger in driving with a cracked windshield. I've learned so much about windshields prepping for this talk. For one, when you have a cracked or shattered windshield, you're more likely to fly through the windshield if you get hit in a head-on accident. <clears throat> Secondly, your airbags are reliant on the windshield like being a back support to properly function. So if you have a cracked or shattered windshield, you're, you're at higher risk of your airbags malfunctioning. And third, if you're in a rollover and you have a cracked or shattered windshield, um, your roof is much more likely to collapse. So these, this, it's not just aesthetic, like I said, but it actually can cause real harm to you. Additionally, a cracked windshield can impair your visibility, making it difficult to see things around you correctly, especially in low light or harsh weather. What I want us to see tonight is that bitterness is a lot like a chip in a windshield. The initial offense can seem small, but the passage of time will not heal your bitterness. It might stay imperceptible for a long, long time, but eventually, if left unaddressed, that crack will grow. All it takes is one of life's bumps or some additional stress for your bitterness to spread. Your unaddressed bitterness is a danger to yourself and those who are close to you, and it might very well be impairing the way you view your surrounding circumstances. Tonight, through the story of Joseph, we'll be looking at the root of bitterness, the fruit of bitterness, and the freedom of forgiveness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this time together. I thank you for these people in this room. I pray for my words, that your word, uh, your spirit would do the work. Um, God, that we would humble our hearts to learn what you have to teach us tonight, that you would help us uh, identify areas of our life that we can apply this to. Um, God, if I say anything that's untrue, please let it be forgotten. Give me the words to speak. Um, it's all for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, the story of Joseph starts in Genesis 37. If you have a Bible, you can flip there with me. That's the first book of the Bible. And this story takes up the better part of 14 chapters. So needless to say, we will be moving rather quickly. Um, so for that reason, I encourage you to reread this story sometime this week. Take some time um, and see what else stands out to you from the text. Here at the block, we believe that God is a father who desires to be known and loved by his children. And we believe that he has told us all we need to know about him and all we need to know about us in this book. If you don't have a copy of your own, I invite you to stop at the Connect Center on your way out to grab one so you can read and find out for yourself. Before we get to Joseph, though, let's recap what's happened so far in history, so far. So we're 37 chapters in. Back in Genesis 1, God creates the heavens and the earth. He creates Adam and Eve. Soon after, in Genesis 3, sin entered the world. God became displeased and he flooded the earth to start over, but he spared a righteous man named Noah and his family. God continued to look for faithful people to work in and through, and one of those people was Abraham, who was Joseph's great-grandfather. In Genesis 12, God promised Abraham that he was going to make Abraham into a mighty nation, and these people would be God's people, and God would be their God, and he would bless them in order that all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Then Abraham waited. He turned 80, still no children. He turned 90, still 
no children. Then at the age of 100, Abraham had a son named Isaac. The promise was still intact. Isaac, Joseph's grandfather, then had a son named Jacob, who was Joseph's father. Jacob fell in love with a girl named Rachel, but was deceived by her father and ended up marrying her sister, Leah. Don't you hate when that happens? <laughs> Rachel was his chosen bride, but they were unable to conceive. Meanwhile, Jacob had 10 sons with other women. But then in Genesis 30, 22 to 24, God remembered Rachel. He listened to her and enabled her to conceive. She became pregnant, pregnant and gave birth to a son and said, God has taken away my disgrace. She named him Joseph. So now Joseph's on the scene. Then as she was dying in childbirth, she gave birth to a final son named Benjamin. To recap the main characters here, we've got Jacob, we've got his 10 sons, and we've got his son Joseph, and we've got his son Benjamin. Now starting in verse 2 of chap uh, chapter 37 of Genesis. This is the account of Jacob's fam family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Belah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. So already you can see there's uh, what we could call relational tension, I guess, um, between Joseph and his brothers. And I, I sort of get it, I guess. He kind of sounds like a 17-year-old punk in some ways here that's like tattling on his older brothers while he's rocking his like custom-made leather, leather jacket that his dad made for him. Uh, yeah, they, we're told that they hated him, uh, but there's more. In verse 5, Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brother said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream and told, his told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream, and this time the sun and moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father, as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. So to recap, in case it wasn't clear, uh, Joseph's brothers do not like him. Bitterness typically begins as a seed that's planted when someone feels wronged or mistreated. Whether they actually were wronged or mistreated is actually irrelevant. When watered with cynicism, skepticism, hatred, or doubt, the root of bitterness sprouts from the seed. Then, when suppressed or left unaddressed, the root of bitterness eventually sprouts the rotten fruit of bitterness, which brings about death. I'll say that again. Bitterness typically begins as a seed that is planted when someone feels wronged or mistreated. When watered with cynicism, skepticism, hatred, or doubt, the root of bitterness sprouts from the seed. Then when suppressed or left unaddressed, the root of bitterness eventually sprouts the rotten fruit of bitterness, which brings about death. So first, let's look at the root of bitterness. What events give root to bitterness in the hearts of the brothers? Let's make five observations from the text while we also humbly consider the inclinations of our own hearts. First, on a material level, Joseph had something that the brothers desired, the ornate coat. This coat led the brothers to feel inferior to Joseph. Maybe for you it isn't a coat that is the seed that sprouts bitterness, but a graduation gown or a trophy you sacrificed greatly for but came up short. 
Maybe it's something that sounds sort of silly, but isn't any less dangerous, like the latest iPhone or Taylor Swift tickets. More on that later. Or maybe it's more intang uh, intangible, like a more flexible work schedule or more ability to travel. If you've, ever, if you've ever felt inferior or less than because you lacked a specific possession, maybe you can begin to understand the root of the brother's bitterness. Second, Joseph seems at least socially unaware, if not outright arrogant. Might ever you suppress your bitterness by calling it an annoyance or a pet peeve? Maybe. If you're like me, you find it incredibly easy to attribute the absolute worst of intentions to someone when they cut you off in traffic or go slow in the left lane or say something ambiguous about your character. Yet when you're the one causing the offense, you give yourself infinite excuses. Just me? Maybe we, then, can begin to understand the root of the brother's bitterness. Third, Joseph gave a bad report about them. I have to think that Joseph was truthful in his report, but knowing what we know about Joseph so far, it seems possible that he might have gone out of his way to, you know, maybe paint the brothers in, like, a little bit worse light. Like, this just, he's telling the truth, but maybe it's, like, the worst version of the truth, you know? Have you ever had someone you trusted go behind your back to share something unflattering about you? Have you ever been told everything is good, but then been blindsided by negative feedback? Has someone caused you harm by spreading something you thought was a secret? Maybe you can begin to understand the root of the brother's bitterness. Fourth, Joseph was shown favorable treatment. This one seems fairly easy to relate to. Have you ever been passed over for promotion in favor of someone who deserved it way less than you? Have your efforts to care for or serve someone gone underappreciated? Have you ever worked hard on a presentation or a school project only for someone else to get the recognition? Maybe you also then can begin to understand the root of the brother's bitterness. Lastly, and likely most significantly, Joseph had the love of his father, something his brothers deeply desired. This one is really hard. Have you ever found yourself in this exact situation where you desired the affections of your parents, but they favored your sibling? Have you longed to earn the respect of someone important to you, but never felt like you were enough? Have you given greatly of yourself to another and made yourself vulnerable only for them to break your heart? Maybe you also can understand the root of the brother's bitterness. Identifying bitterness at the root can be incredibly painful. In preparing for this message, I've been surprised multiple times to discover roots of bitterness in my heart that I was unaware of. But it's a critical first step towards freedom. Let's continue on now with the story. Joseph's, Joseph's brothers are about 50 miles away from home, uh, grazing their flocks of sheep, their shepherds. And Jacob tells Joseph, go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks and bring word back to me. Then he sent him off from the valley of Hebron. So Joseph uh, is in the safety of the valley, but his father Jacob sends him out to the fields to check on his brothers. As I read, be listening now for the fruit of the brother's bitterness. Next slide, starting in verse 18, continue on, continuing on. But they, uh, the brothers, saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of the cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. For reference, a cistern was just a deep hole um, dug in the ground to collect rainwater. Um, needless to say, the story is not, it's not looking good for Joseph thus far. Continuing, verse 23, so when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. So you can see what began as a few chips in a windshield is spreading rapidly. First they threatened to kill him, then they disparaged him with names, and even after they graciously spared his life, they still stripped him of his robe. Then the brothers saw some merchants on their way to Egypt, which was 400 miles to the southwest. 
Verse 26, Judah, one of the brothers, said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites, uh, who were just the merchants, and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So in other words, Judah says, hey guys, Joseph has more value to us as an object that we could sell than he does as a brother or as a person. Their bitterness was affecting their vision and really their perception of reality. Verse 28, so when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in blood. They took the ornate robe back to their father and said, we found this, examine it to see, if it's, uh, to see whether it is your son's robe. He, uh, Jacob, recognized it and said, it is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Often the impacts of our bitterness stretch far beyond our intended target. Here it costs the life of an innocent goat. The brothers are so comfortable with what they've done, they cover it up with a lie to their father. As you would expect, the, the windshield has completely spiderwebbed. Do you know how much it cost me to replace my Forerunner windshield the first time? About $380. When I got the chip in the windshield, do you know how much I paid for a windshield chip repair kit? $15. So in addition to the money, it also cost me time and energy to do the work myself. Addressing bitterness at the root will cost you something, but not addressing bitterness will cost you a lot more. Rather than repairing the chip at the source, the brothers took justice upon themselves. They perceived that Joseph had wronged them, and they took matters into their own hands. In our cultural moment, this seems to be the way to exact retribution. The one who offended me must adequately suffer before I offer any forgiveness. What does this look like? Let's take a look at the fruit of bitterness and the small and the big ways it leads us to, just like the brothers, take justice into our own hands. We'll start with the smaller ones first. Uh, when I feel disrespected by a fellow Johnson County driver, maybe I'll take justice into my own hands by riding their bumper for a bit just to make sure that they know that they messed up. This is the fruit of bitterness. When I feel like I deserve better service at a restaurant, maybe I'll withhold some of my tip. Don't they know who I am and how hard I worked for that money? This is the fruit of bitterness. Okay, back to the aforementioned Taylor Swift tickets because this one hits close to home. Um, not to brag, I was proudly in the top 3% of Taylor Swift listeners on my 2022 Spotify wrapped. Thank you. Also, they collect that in after October, so that doesn't even count um, all November and December that I listened to Midnight Rain. So it really was, even, really was even more than that. So of course, last month I wanted to go to the Taylor Swift concert. The problem was, is that I like Taylor Swift, but I don't $1,200 like Taylor Swift. And I know what you're thinking, you should have bought tickets for $200 on pre-sale. And to you, I say, yes, I should have. But here's my thing, everyone paid $1,200 to go see Taylor Swift. Yes, maybe you only paid $150, maybe you got your ticket for free from some like radio call-in or something if people still listen to the radio. Um, but on July 8th, you had a choice between selling your ticket for $1,200 and keeping your ticket. And you chose your Taylor Swift ticket meaning that you paid $1,200 for your ticket. <laughs> and I'm happy, for, I'm happy for you. I forgot, I'm supposed to say that. I'm really happy for you. Do not feel guilty about that. I am not bitter. At least I didn't think that I was until I was talking to this girl who went to the concert both nights. And she was 
reveling in these memories and just sharing the glory, you know, of the, of the Taylor Swift concert. And you know who opened, decided to open up his mouth and explain my $1,200 theory right then? <laughs> Me. <laughs> Was it because I wanted to teach her a lesson about fiscal responsibility and investment wisdom? No, it was because she had something that I wanted. I wished that I had. So the fruit of bitterness in me desired to exact revenge by tearing her down and stealing her joy rather than rejoicing with her. Now, was I consciously thinking about taking justice into my own hands? No, but this is just a small example of little ways that I can look to even the score. This is the fruit of bitterness. Number four, like the way Joseph's brother said, here comes that dreamer we'll resort to calling someone names when they have something that we deep down wish we had. Oh, what a meathead, I might say, when deep down I'm like, hey, wish I could get to the gym as much as that guy does. I wish I could kind of start to look like that. Maybe I'll say, oh, that guy's so whipped. <laughs> but really deep down, do people say that anymore? I don't even know. <laughs> deep down, it's just me wanting a girl to spend time with and whose needs I could serve. So that is an example of the fruit of bitterness. Number five, in our service industry jobs, a customer comes in 15 minutes before close. How dare they force me to do the job that I'm getting paid for for the full time that I'm getting paid for it, I think, as I half-heartedly serve them, uh, just to let them know, you know, at least they'll know then that they shouldn't, they've, they've wronged us. They've hurt me by coming in 15 minutes before close. Or maybe you work in another industry, you know, doesn't the client know I'm so busy right now? How dare he ask me a question that's perfectly in my job description to help him answer? I can't believe it. This is the fruit of bitterness. Number six, if I'm the roommate or spouse who feels like I'm the only one carrying my own weight around here or that I'm not getting the recognition I deserve, maybe I'll take out the trash in just such a way as to draw attention to my goodness with the hopes that my roommates will feel bad. Maybe if I don't take the trash out at all anymore, they'll see how ignorant they've been and how much they owe me for all that, uh, all that I've done for them. Shout out to my roommates who are in the room. This is just a hypothetical situation. <laughs> this is the fruit of bitterness. <laughs> Number seven, at work, we don't come uh, to the defense of someone when their name is being dragged or we're quick to pile on during break room gossip sessions. Worse yet, we become the instigator who fishes for unhelpful comments just to feel justified in our bitterness. Hey, can you believe that thing that Jill said? Have you seen uh, Joe's sales numbers lately? Has anyone else been less than impressed with Scott's work product? Am I right? You know, you're fishing for, fishing for insults for your coworkers, uh, which is the fruit of bitterness. Maybe we, we know better than to exact retribution, but rather than attempting to work through the way someone has hurt us, we choose to ignore them or cut them out of our lives completely. This is the fruit of bitterness. Two more. Number nine, in our community groups at church, we thought this one was going to be off limits, we feel like we're the only ones doing anything spiritual or we're the only ones waking up and reading our Bible anymore, so we passive-aggressively ask others what they've been reading just to make them feel guilty and to make us feel, guilt, uh, feel a little bit more worthy of God's favor and attention. This is the fruit of bitterness. Finally, in our families, we'll speak with abruptness. Our words will be pristine, but our tone communicates our true intent. We can't be held responsible because we've said all the right things. It's the other person's fault if they have an issue. Or we feel untrusted, and rather than using words to communicate, we withhold respect so the other party gets a taste of our hurt. This also is the fruit of bitterness. The problem with all of these is this. Who gets to decide when the payment for the offense is sufficient? Am I now in the place of God that I get to decide what good to withhold from someone until they've properly felt some of the pain that they've inflicted on me? The fruit of bitterness causes me to desire less for someone than what God's best for that person is. 
while the root of bitterness is robbing me of God's best for me. Once more, the fruit of bitterness causes me to desire less for someone than what God's best is for that person, while the root of bitterness is robbing me of God's best for me. But what even is the alternative, though? Consider Joseph. Not only had he been rejected and despised by his brothers, thrown into a pit and sold into slavery, but his last two interactions with his father were that his father rebuked him after Joseph told him his dream, and then his father sent him off on a mission towards the brothers who hated him. Was that, was that intentional? Joseph had to have been wondering. Let's continue with the story, though. After being sold into slavery, Joseph was sold again, this time to a man in Egypt named Potiphar. God gave Joseph success in everything he did, and when Potiphar saw this, he put Joseph in charge of Potiphar's entire household. Soon after, though, Potiphar's wife falsely accused him of attempted rape, and he was sent to prison. Sometime later, while still in prison, he befriended the baker and the baker, uh, the baker and the, uh, the wine master of the Pharaoh, the ruler of all of Egypt. And God gave Joseph the ability to interpret their dreams for them. In three days, the wine master would be restored to his position in Pharaoh's house, but the cupbearer would be put to death. And so it happened. But when the wine master was restored to his position in Pharaoh's household, he forgot about Joseph. Two whole years passed. Then it was Pharaoh who had a dream, and no one at this time could interpret it. The wine master remembered Joseph, and Joseph was brought up from the prison to interpret the dream. By God's power, he correctly predicted that seven years of surplus in the land would be followed by seven years of famine. Pharaoh promoted him to second in command over all of Egypt. I would be remiss at this point not to point out here that this plan involved collecting a portion of everyone's surplus during the bountiful years in order to have enough later during the years of famine. Why is this important? Um, because I'm a tax accountant, so I'm obligated to highlight when there's a genius tax strategy going on here. Or socialist strategy, I don't know, we're not going to get into that. Anyways, famine rocked the surrounding lands, and 400 miles away from Egypt, Joseph's father and brothers were nearly out of food. Upon learning that there was grain in Egypt, Jacob sent 10 of his remaining sons to go get food, but he didn't allow Benjamin to go because he didn't want to risk losing the only other son his beloved Rachel had given him. Okay, that's the... The summary, real fast. If you're keeping track at home, the list of the ways Joseph has wrong, been wronged thus far in the story is now fairly substantial. To recap, he was hated by his brothers. His dreams were disregarded, though they were true. He was thrown into the pit and sold into slavery. He was falsely accused of sin, sentenced to prison, forgotten about for two extra years, and maybe, he thinks, maybe even disowned by his father. But now he's been promoted to a place of power. Behind Pharaoh, he was the second most powerful man in all of Egypt. And here come his brothers, unknowingly, right to his doorstep, 400 miles away. You can feel the tension starting to build. Not only did he have the ability to exact his retribution, to I told you so, his brothers, to imprison them, enslave them, or kill them, but he maybe even would have felt justified in doing any or all of those things. Surely no one would have faulted him for taking revenge. After all, that's how his brothers had dealt with, him, with their bitterness and dealt with Joseph. But Joseph was different. Now, unfortunately, there's so much in this story that we have to skip over, but to summarize their first interaction, the brothers met Joseph face to face, but they didn't recognize him. Joseph hid and wept. They paid him for their food, and Joseph filled their bags with grain and gave them provision for their journey home. He also secretly returned the silver they paid with. The famine was still severe, though, and the food once again ran out, so they needed to return once again to Egypt. When they returned the second time, Joseph brought them into his own house, gave them water to wash their feet, and provided food for their donkeys. The brothers bowed down to Joseph, just as was foretold in his childhood dream. At the sight of his younger brother Benjamin, his only biological brother, he hid and he wept again. 
Still unknown to his brothers, he threw a feast for them. Joseph again filled their bags and secretly returned their silver to them, but this time he also planted a silver goblet in Benjamin's bag. Once the brothers departed for home then, Joseph sent his guards to arrest the brothers and bring them back into his presence. Now, I wish we could get into this tonight, but I need you to know that while that does sound like a devious thing, somewhat devious thing for Joseph to do, the part of the story, this part of the story beautifully foreshadows God's plan for salvation in ways that we don't have time to talk about tonight. But Benjamin, the youngest brother, was taken into captivity, and Judah, who was the brother who sold Joseph into slavery, if you remember, knew the anguish this news would cause their father. We pick it back up at the end of chapter 44, as Judah is pleading with Joseph. How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No, do not let me see the misery that would come on my father. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants, and he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers, and he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him, and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, Come close to me. Come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. What does he say next? How dare you have the audacity to show your face before me? No. Father was right to love me more than you. No. I told you this would happen and you didn't believe me. Now you will pay. No, he doesn't say that either. We look at verse five. And now do not be distressed, Joseph says, and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. Then verse eight. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, Lord of his entire household and ruler of all Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, don't delay. You shall live in the region of Goshen and be near me. You, your children and grandchildren, your flocks and herds and all you have, I will provide for you there. Instead of taking justice into his own hands the way his brothers did, Joseph entrusted justice to God. Joseph believed that every offense against him, every wrong, every betrayal, every trespass and every hurt will ultimately be paid for in one of two ways. It will either be paid for by the offender on the day of God's wrath and judgment, or it, will, will, it, or it will be paid for by the blood of Jesus on the cross. Because of this, Joseph can choose to forgive his brothers. Like bitterness, forgiveness is a choice. Hear this, though, by choosing forgiveness, Joseph was not discounting the hurt that his brothers had caused him. By choosing forgiveness, Joseph was not communicating that their sins were no big deal. He's wept deeply three times so far in this story. You don't think that Joseph still hurt? By choosing forgiveness, Joseph was choosing to not hold his brother's mistakes against them. By choosing forgiveness, he was releasing his control and his desire to get even. By choosing forgiveness, he loosened himself from the bondage of bitterness so that he could love them and bless them. By choosing forgiveness, Joseph was choosing freedom. It was not you who sent me here, but God, he said. In other words, look at all the good that God did, not only in spite of me, uh, sorry, not only in spite of, but also through the ways that you hurt me. Does your bitterness extend past the people who have hurt you to God himself? 
Maybe fertility issues have caused you to doubt God's goodness. Maybe you've prayed for something or someone for months or even years and you're starting to wonder if God even cares. Remember, it was only through his trials that God elevated Joseph to his position. Even in the pit and even in the prison, God did not leave him. Do you trust that God is using your hurt and your pain and your wounds for your good and for his glory? If so, then you don't need to get revenge. A few chapters later, Joseph says this in Genesis 50, verse 20. He says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. What if these two verses became your catchphrases in the, in the face of adversity and hurt and resentment? The next time you're treated unfairly at work, think to yourself, it was not you who sent me here, but God. The next time someone makes a false accusation about you, you can think you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. The next time you're reminded of the deep wounds caused by a family member, you can think it was not you who sent me here, it was God. Or the next time that you're laid off from your job, you can think you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. While the story of Joseph is instructive, you can see that the way he still acts, you can see the way that he acts imperfectly at times. Though there was purpose in his methods, in his sinful human nature, he still offered slight retaliations to make sure his brothers had changed before he offered any forgiveness or restoration. Certainly, God used Joseph in mighty, mighty ways, not only to deliver his people from the famine and ensure death, but to give them land and redeem their plight. And while Joseph could offer forgiveness to his brothers for the way they had wronged him, he could not actually forgive the sins of his brothers. See, sin is committed first and foremost against God, and secondly, against other people. So while Joseph had relinquished the right to personally exact vengeance, and he released his brothers from bearing the responsibility of bringing restoration, he was still powerless to actually restore his brothers to right standing with a holy God. Joseph's life was a shadow of what was to come, a life that pointed forward to a more perfect deliverer, a more holy redeemer, a more just judge, and a more pure king, and his name is Jesus. Consider this, Joseph, a shepherd, was the beloved son who was sent out from the safety of his home only to be rejected and despised by his own people. Jesus, the great shepherd, was the beloved son who was sent out from the safety of his heavenly home only to be rejected and despised by his own people. Joseph was hated because of what he prophesied about himself and he was conspired against and sold for 20 pieces of silver by Judah. His coat was taken from him, torn, dipped in goat's blood, and presented to his father. Jesus was hated because of what he prophesied about himself, and he was conspired against and sold for 30 pieces of silver by Judas. His clothes were taken from him, torn and divided, and he became the scapegoat whose blood was presented to the father. Joseph was falsely accused, but rather than call out to Potiphar for justice, he entrusted himself to God and remained silent. Jesus was falsely accused, but rather than call out to Pilate for justice, he entrusted himself to God and remained silent. Joseph, when in the pit of prison, was flanked on either side. On one side, the baker who was destined to die. On the other, the wine master who was to be restored to his former position. Jesus, when on the cross, was flanked on either side. On one side, a thief who was destined to die. On the other, the thief who was to be with Jesus in paradise. Joseph, at the age of 30, received affirmation from his new father and was given new authority in the public eye. He sold people grain that would be baked into bread to satisfy their hunger. Jesus at the age of 30, received affirmation from his father and was given new authority in the public eye. He called himself the bread of life and whoever partakes will never hunger again. 
Through Joseph and the wounds inflicted upon him by his own people, God preserved for himself a remnant of his people on earth and saved them by a great deliverance. Through Jesus and the wounds inflicted upon him by his own people, God preserved for himself a remnant of his people and saved them by a great deliverance. Joseph, rather than choosing bitterness, chose forgiveness. Jesus, rather than choosing bitterness, chose forgiveness. How much more confidence should we have in God's faithfulness than Joseph had? Even Joseph only had the promise of a future savior who wouldn't arrive for another 1,600 years, yet we can look back and see God's faithfulness and forgiveness in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. My intent tonight has not been to be dismissive of your hurt. It's likely that I'm unable to comprehend the ways you've been wounded and mistreated, and I'm sorry that those things happened to you. My intent is not to stand up here and offer some cheap solution, like, choose forgiveness, it's so easy, and all your pain and suffering will disappear. No, forgiveness is costly. For Jesus, it cost him his life. How then? How do we choose forgiveness? The answer is found in Matthew 18. If you've been around the block for a while, you'll remember this one, but Jesus tells the story of a servant who owed billions of dollars to a king. The servant begged the king for mercy, and the king canceled his debt in full. Then the same servant turned around and found another servant who owed him a few thousand dollars. Nothing compared to the billions of dollars that he was forgiven, but also still like enough of an amount that it would hurt to offer forgiveness for. The second servant begged for mercy from the first servant, but the first servant refused and had him thrown into prison until he could pay his debt. When word got back to the king, the king was furious, and he had that first servant turned over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay back the billions that he owed. Only once we understand the depths to which we've been forgiven can we, un- uh, can we have the power to choose to forgive others. Choosing forgiveness instead of bitterness is to announce to the world, I, I am that first servant. I have been freely and fully forgiven, so I will choose to freely and fully forgive. Any other answer reflects a misunderstanding of the lavish grace that has been poured out on us. Side note, I'd like to point out that forgiveness and reconciliation are two different things. Reconciliation or or restoration requires two people, while forgiveness only requires one. And while restoration should often be the goal, we can't control what we can't control. Be faithful to offer forgiveness and be quick to seek reconciliation when possible. But there will be times when you have to release control of the results to God and be be thankful that he is God and you are not. To close, what do we do with this? For the skeptic in the room or the one who's still trying to figure out all this God stuff, Consider the weight of the sin you have committed against a just and holy God. Consider that a just and holy God requires payment for sin. Consider the way that Jesus, the spotless sacrificial lamb, the more perfect Joseph, chose forgiveness and took the punishment that was owed to you in himself on that wooden cross so that you would be found not guilty should you trust in him and him alone for forgiveness. Consider the high cost that you will incur in submitting your life to his lordship. Finally, Consider the exponentially higher cost you will incur should you choose to pay for your sins yourself. Jesus chose forgiveness to give you the opportunity to choose Jesus. For the Christian in the room, if your windshield, hypothetical windshield, has a crack in it, go pay what it takes to make it right. It might cost more than $15 now. It might cost $400 or $4,000, but the cost is nothing compared to the freedom that awaits. So, what do we do? Number one, comb your heart. Look for and ask God to reveal to you roots of bitterness you're holding on to. Two, confess. 
Confess your bitterness to God and maybe even to the person whom you have held bitterness against. Three, call to mind the way you've been forgiven. Regularly reflect on on the undeserved grace that has been poured out on you, which is what the first servant failed to do. And as I invite the band to come on up, number four, choose forgiveness, choose freedom. Entrust justice to God and trust that he has your best in mind. Let's pray. Father God, in this moment, I'm reminded of the beautiful words of the song, Jesus, Thank You. It says, the mystery of the cross I cannot comprehend, the agonies of Calvary. You, the perfect Holy One, crushed your son who drank the bitter cup reserved for me. By your perfect sacrifice, I've been brought near. Your enemy, you've made your friend. Pouring out the riches of your glorious grace, your mercy and your kindness know no end. Your blood has washed away our sin. The Father's wrath completely satisfied. Once your enemy now seated at your table, Jesus, thank you. Father God, help us to identify the roots of bitterness in our heart. Forgive us for the fruits of our bitterness. Give us the courage and the strength to choose forgiveness tonight. Amen.